And India, for example, has really driven down the cost of wind and solar power dramatically over a short period of time. But once you reach a point where a significant percentage of your electricity comes from the so-called intermittent renewables, solar and wind power, then you need regulatory capacity. You need dynamic pricing. You might need some battery storage. You need ways to provide electricity when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow. All this can be done, but it does require quite a bit of expertise and learning by doing. And that's why it's so important that these countries don't repeat the mistakes that the wealthier countries have made, but this kind of cross-country learning is possible. Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. In this episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Johannes Erpelinen of the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, where he's the director and Prince Sultan bin Abul Aziz, Professor of Energy, Resources and Environment, as well as the founding director of the Initiative for Sustainable Energy Policy. He's written a Brookings Institute uh, report entitled, Why the United States Should Compete with China in global clean energy finance. And this is an area I find very interesting and my our readers as well. So welcome to the interview, interview uh, Johans. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. Now, I'll, I'll provide a little bit of context from your uh, report just for listeners. And you say that China is the behemoth of global energy finance. And between 2007 and 2016, it financed a total of $197 billion in overseas energy sectors. And in fact, it is the biggest uh, uh, global financer in terms of foreign direct investment in electricity generation. And fossil fuel power plants with Chinese overseas investment and finance currently produce approximately 314 million tons of CO2 emissions. So that's, this, is, this is not an insignificant amount of emissions that are created. And of course, the trend is in the wrong direction. Uh, because once these power plants are built, uh, whether they be coal or natural gas, then those emissions are more than likely locked in for 30, 40, or 50 years, the life of the plant. So, and you also uh, are, argue that there for a two-pronged strategy from, from the U.S. in terms of both providing more uh, finance to emerging countries, but also, and I found this very interesting, uh, providing assistance on to develop regulatory, uh, a more robust regulatory environment in the emerging countries as well. That's a very important part. So we'll talk about that. So with that background, maybe I'll just get you to give us a brief overview of your uh, report, please. Absolutely. So uh, as you just said, the idea of this report or brief was to look at what are some concrete steps that the United States can take to direct Chinese overseas energy finance toward cleaner sources and possibly provide an alternative for countries in need. There are very many countries around the world, especially in emerging Asia, that still have significant unmet energy needs. They need more power generation capacity. They need transportation fuels. They need industrial energy. And 
a lot of the emissions growth today comes from those countries. We are already expecting China to peak in terms of greenhouse gas emissions in the next 10 years. The United States, Europe, Japan, these are all countries that are already in a declining trajectory. So if we really want to beat climate change and meet our targets of, let's say, limiting global warming below two degrees Celsius under the Paris Agreement on climate change, we have to find solutions for South Asia, Southeast Asia, and so on. In the report, we describe China's leading role in global energy finance today. But then we highlight that much of that finance is really responding to a real demand from the recipient countries. It is not the case that China is pushing coal-fired power generation on countries that really don't want it. It is rather the case that these countries are looking for energy solutions. And coal-fired power generation is often the solution that they're familiar with, the one that they expect to produce affordable and reliable electricity. And then the Chinese companies, which do face a challenge in terms of decreasing domestic demand for their construction, operation, and finance, they are then responding to those recipient countries' needs. And understanding this demand-led logic is key because that creates an opportunity for the United States to go in and catalyze these clean energy markets with affordable concessional finance strategies. One of the examples that you provide is the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. Uh, Pakistan approached China about building coal-fired power plants. They, uh, in fact, proposed the development of at least 5,000 megawatts of new coal power plants, an investment of $20 billion. Is that a, a kind of typical approach for emerging countries that are looking for Chinese investment? I would say yes and no. Yes, in the sense that this is a typical situation of a country that faces a serious energy deficit. Just 10 years ago, Pakistan's ability to generate electricity for industry, air conditioning, commerce, was very limited and they were really looking for solutions. And China was a natural choice because China and Pakistan have a long-standing relationship and Pakistan really needs kind of a major power on its side because it is in a continuing conflict with India, which is a much larger country with nuclear weapons and all that. So the typical side here is that the country had an energy deficit and they did not really see any other alternatives at that point. Coal was the primary kind of natural, easy, understandable solution for them. What is atypical here is that because Pakistan has such a strong relationship with China, they also had the geopolitics working in their favor. They could go to China and said, look, we've been your loyal ally for a long time. We need finance. Could you please provide some? Other countries don't have the same geopolitical cachet with China. Could you give us an example of other Asian countries uh, who are a little bit more typical, uh, maybe Vietnam or a country like that? I would say that Indonesia is an interesting case here. Indonesia has had historically a very large coal sector, everything from mining to power generation to industrial uses. But the Chinese companies have played a major role in construction 
There's also Chinese finance in the Indonesian coal sector. And this is a typical example. In Indonesia is kind of in a carbon lock-in. They've been doing coal for such a long time that they don't really know what else to do. Uh, but they don't have the geopolitical relationship with China. In fact, Indonesia is in a kind of an awkward position because they're trying to maintain their relationship with the United States and Japan, which China perceives as competitors. So um, in a case like this, uh, you make the point that uh, if the, the host country is looking for investment, comes to China and says, we're not interested in coal power this time. We would like to do some renewables, some wind, some solar, whatever it might be. And can you help us with that? China's quite happy to do that. Yes. So certainly China has itself a large renewable energy sector. In fact, domestic capacity expansion in renewables is now in the hundreds of gigawatts in, in China. There are many companies that could do an outstanding job building renewable energy capacity. The one caveat to this is that if you look at China's ability and willingness to operate those plants instead of just doing the construction, but actually take an equity position and run the plants in Pakistan or Indonesia, that is much more limited because there's geopolitical risk, there's just sovereign default risk, there's all kinds of challenges. So the Chinese companies would love to construct. And therefore, the host countries do face a challenge in the sense that they might not have the domestic companies that would then run the plants that the Chinese have built. Um, interesting. Uh, you make another point that the, um, uh, the uh, Chinese uh, industry is currently oversupplied and that, and I'm talking about the renewable uh, manufacturing industry, wind turbines and, and solar panels and so on. So their domestic demand has contracted and they're looking to these markets for, uh, for as new markets uh, and an outlet for their surplus capacity. And it, what, how big a pressure is that on chi the Chinese policy? This is a very significant pressure and challenge in China. China has historically grown into an economic superpower with industry and manufacturing. It really is the world's factory. And if you look at what's happening during COVID-19, China's position in global markets, if anything, is stronger than it used to be. But it also means that there's a lot of industrial overcapacity in construction, power plants, factories, because China now has all that infrastructure. It doesn't need more of that. China needs more tech. China needs more services, more innovation. But at the same time, there, there are so many jobs. There's so much capital deployed in these companies that they are pretty desperate in looking for opportunities. Whether it's building power plants within China that nobody needs, this is still happening. They're still building coal-fired power plants despite the huge overcapacity in power generation within China or it is global markets. They're looking for opportunities to build. My only wrinkle or change to the conventional narrative is that the Chinese would be very happy to build solar power plants, wind power plants, geothermal, hydro, if that's what the recipient countries are looking for. Now, we generally tend to think of the uh, 
the Chinese sphere of influence as, as within Asia. But uh, you note here that in Latin America, Chinese investors have financed wind power projects with a total generation of just over 4,000 megawatts. That's, that's actually a significant investment. That is correct. China has over the past 20 years built significant relationships with many Latin American countries. And I think it all started in the early 2000s when China was very worried about access to natural resources and resource security and energy security. It made a lot of sense then to work with countries like Brazil, countries like Bolivia that have a lot of natural resources. And that then created these markets and openings for Chinese companies in an area that's traditionally been dominated mostly by the United States. Well, let's talk about something that I perceive as, as being a, a push driven and not and as opposed to the pull of demand. And that's China's Belt and Road Initiative. So you note that uh, 56 Belt and Road Initiative countries between 2014 and 2017, most of the Chinese energy uh, financing and investment were in carbon intensive sectors. That is correct. So the Belt and Road Initiative does play an important role here. But our research at the Initiative for Sustainable Energy Policy with my collaborator, Chu Yu Liu, and with Professor Tom Hale from Oxford University found that the Belt and Road really has this bottom-up logic. Chinese companies are looking for opportunities in the global markets. When they go to the Chinese policy banks, which are funding and financing these projects, they tend to frame the projects as Belt and Road because that gives them some political capital and recognition given that China's premier Xi Jinping was the one who kind of branded this Belt and Road. So Belt and Road is an important push, but in our assessment, some people historically have kind of overestimated the strategic dimension of Belt and Road. It is equally domestic rent-seeking and opportunistic activity in China and outside China. Now, your recommendations for what the United States should do in response to China comes at a very opportune time. Uh, next week, we'll see uh, President-elect Joe Biden's inauguration. He has committed uh, $2 trillion over 10 years to his climate and clean energy plan. And in reading his plan, one of the things that stuck out for me was his commitment to elevating uh, the United States as a clean energy superpower that will compete directly with China. And so you have a sort of a two-pronged strategy here. Maybe you could describe that uh, for us. Absolutely. So first of all, I would agree with the, with the view that President Biden, so President-elect Biden still today, uh, plan gives us a natural opportunity to actually act on some of these recommendations. And so what we propose is a twofold strategy. On the one hand, it is important to directly compete with China on clean energy finance. That means going out to these countries and providing finance for clean energy. If these countries need energy, the United States should go in and offer loans, offer other kinds of financial uh, mechanisms and deals at affordable interest rates so that it makes sense for these countries to participate and cooperate with the United States. And this could be done, for example, through the new development finance corporation, 
which is in a fantastic position because it has a much greater ability to offer finance than the previous one, uh, the overseas uh, private investment corporation had. The DFC can offer $60 billion of funding. On the other hand, in, on top of finance, another thing that we've observed in our research is that many of these recipient countries really struggle with mechanisms like environmental impact assessment, regulation, monitoring, and enforcement of rules. And given that what we know about the environmental impact of fossil fuels, just strengthening these rules and engaging in technical cooperation with countries like Pakistan and Indonesia would naturally make clean energy much more competitive because the environmental footprint is so much smaller than that of fossil fuels. You make the point in the article that one of the advantages of taking this approach is that the United States can help to grow clean energy markets in these emerging countries, where whereas now they may be non-existent or they may be very immature, but the United States can help them to build those out. And then that then creates increasing demand for, for, the, for clean energy. Have I got that correct? Absolutely. So one of the key things to note here is that globally, renewable energy is already very affordable. In fact, if you want to generate a kilowatt hour of electricity today with wind or solar, it is significantly cheaper than a kilowatt hour of new, newly built coal-fired power generation. But the challenge is that some of these countries have not yet climbed the learning curve. They don't yet have the expertise, the experience to do this. So if you take a country like Vietnam, just a few years ago, it looked pretty hopeless. The renewable energy market was very small. Nobody was doing deals. There wasn't a lot of enthusiasm. And just look at Vietnam today. Today, they are really skyrocketing. They are investing so much in renewables, whether it's rooftop, large gas, solar, wind, onshore, soon maybe offshore. It is really exciting. So if the United States can help build this kind of momentum in Indonesia, in Pakistan, that could be a game changer. And I think there are lessons for uh, what's going on in Canada and the US uh, for these countries, because we see that the role of regulation and the role of markets for renewable energy is really important. So if you like, I mean, California's uh, blackouts in the summer of, of 2020 shows us what happens when you know, regulation is maybe inadequate. And we're seeing US utilities and, and to some extent Canadian utilities grappling with this whole challenge of distributed energy and, and how are they going to design markets that can incorporate that. And then there's all of these new technologies that, uh, that uh, give uh, challenges, but also opportunities to utilities to provide services and other, and, uh, and other revenue generating uh, uh, components of renewable energy. So if sophisticated economies like the United States are grappling with this, we can only imagine what uh, emerging countries, which maybe are, dom you know, as you say, dominated by coal, and they don't have the technical expertise, they don't have the, the, the experience, uh, how much more difficult it would be for them. That's a great point. And India is actually a really good example of this. At the very early stages, of renewable energy development. The challenge is just to build as much as you can. It's all about capacity addition. That includes its own challenges, but they are not that different from the fossil fuels. So these countries have found ways to do this. And India, for example, has really driven down 
the cost of wind and solar power dramatically over a short period of time. But once you reach a point where a significant percentage of your electricity comes from the so-called intermittent renewables, solar and wind power, then you need regulatory capacity. You need dynamic pricing. You might need some battery storage. You need ways to provide electricity when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow. All this can be done, but it does require quite a bit of expertise and learning by doing. And that's why it's so important that these countries don't repeat the mistakes that the wealthier countries have made, but this kind of cross-country learning is possible. On a, taking a broader perspective for a moment, uh, I often see in discussions around this uh, you know, renewable energy that once the cost of wind and solar are below uh, existing coal and natural gas as they appear now to be, that the transition to renewables will be relatively painless and we'll just take out the, the fossil fuels and plug in the renewables and everything will be uh, much better and we'll be on our way to uh, net zero emissions. But this discussion, I think, illustrates the, the, just how complex the transition issue is, and it's finance, it's technology, it's regulation, and you need to get it right. If you get it wrong, as California has, you see what the consequences are. And of course, politicians and regulators worry about those sorts of things, which is kind of an impediment to adoption in a, in a way. So would you agree with me that this illustrates some of the, the complexity of our transition off fossil fuels into clean electricity? Absolutely. So if we think about the way we measure the cost of solar power generation, we typically measure it at a time when the conditions are good, the sun is shining. But if you are in almost any country, except maybe my home country, Finland in the summer, and it's 9 p.m. at night, there is no sunshine. You are not going to be generating any electricity at that time with solar power. Where is that going to come from? And by the way, countries like India and Pakistan tend to have peak electricity demand late at night because that's when people are at home, having their dinners, running the air conditioning and all that. So it's a real challenge. I do think we are learning and it's pretty incredible how much progress we've made over 2020. This is the first time in my career as an energy and environmental scholar that I really have difficulty keeping up with all the progress. But still, the challenge is significant and we should not underestimate it. This has been a, a fascinating discussion, Joens. And Any final thoughts on where, what the U.S. should be doing uh, under the, the, the new Biden administration in terms of positioning itself as a competitor to China on uh, global energy finance? I think we have a situation here where, on the one hand, the United States will come into 2021 with a lot of newfound goodwill, because there are not that many countries out there that prefer President Trump to President Biden, and the ones that do don't have a lot of interest in dealing with climate change. So the United States has a real opportunity now to build coalitions and claim back some of that momentum that uh, the United States had during the Obama administration. At the same time, the United States has broken so many promises and been such a flip-flop over the past 10, 15 years, 20 years in climate policy, that it's important to also stay humble and 
instead of telling other countries what to do, show a good example, reduce emissions, and then work with other countries once you've demonstrated that you can really do it at home. So a combination of leading by example and then supporting some of these key emerging countries in a way that's cooperative and not in any way based on sanctions or pressure or threats, I think that would be the right way to go. A final thought here, Johans, and that is that there's, you know, there's a lot of discussion in the United States about uh, jobs, uh, energy jobs, and it seems to me that the U.S. taking this approach that you advocate would create a significant demand on the American side for expertise, for uh, in financing, in technology. There'd be new manufacturing jobs created, as you know, to help service these. Uh, uh, projects that are might go on in in Asia or Latin America, wherever wherever they might be. So not only would this be a case of you know the United States competing with China on, on in terms of global energy finance, but it seems to me that the economic benefits to the United States would really be quite considerable. Absolutely, I think it's very clear by now that there's a huge amount of work that can be done. A huge wide range of emissions reductions that can be achieved with net positive benefits for the society and the economy. In my program, we train graduate students who become energy professionals. Huge demand for this right now. It's a booming economy and we just launched a new degree called Master of Arts in Sustainable Energy because there's just so much demand. So this is definitely a future area for economic growth, innovation and employment in the United States. And Canada, of course. Johannes, thank you very much for this. Very, very insightful. Thank you for having me.